right, everybody. Welcome to Alumless. Thank you so much for tuning in on this Friday. It is October the 13th. I don't know about you, Chris. It is a beautiful day here in Richmond, Virginia, where I live. The sun's shining through your window there, so it looks like it's pretty nice in Bethlehem, PA. It is beautiful. Good to see you. Yeah, beautiful fall day here to talk alumni engagement, donor engagement strategies, which is what we do here on the podcast. Alumless is a CMAC production. This is episode 35 already, Chris. We've been doing this for a little while. I'm glad people have been tuning in. Uh, for those folks who are tuning in, we're grateful to have you. Use the uh, comments section of the LinkedIn event. Introduce yourself. Tell us where you're representing. And if you have any questions for myself or for Chris or for our special guest today, Mark Davis from UC Santa Cruz, uh, we'd be happy to try to include those questions in our live broadcast. And if not, we'll absolutely try to tackle them in our bonus section of the podcast. Um, let's see here. Well, we I should mention, of course, that we have a fantastic sponsor of the podcast. For those of you who have not uh, heard of Protopia yet, you absolutely must. Uh, we as engagement pros are always thinking about how to create more volunteer opportunities. Why is that? Well, there's lots of reasons, but the big one is that volunteers give at two or even three times the rate. This is important, particularly for those alumni leaders working in integrated advancement models. We're trying to create a pipeline of donors. At the same time, students throughout the educational journey have questions and could use the advice of alumni. As engagement professionals, we're asked to figure out ways to make the alumni network available from prospective student to former student and to develop partnerships across the campus that will showcase in real terms how valuable the alumni network is. That's what Protopia solves for. Without requiring alumni or students to sign up for another app or platform, Protopia's AI-powered technology activates alumni and turns them into volunteers. Students and alumni seeking advice are connected while removing the administrative burden to the staff. Protopia is a tool that you've been looking for. Visit protopia.co forward slash alumless and be sure to tell them that Chris and Ryan sent you. Yeah. Chris, it's good to see you, no, my friend. Yeah, you too, man. Nice plug there. I like your... Was it smooth? Was it a smooth read? Yeah, <laughs> it was a good yeah. read right there. That was well done. I feel like last week was a little more awkward. I'm getting better at it. You are. That was um, good. But I wanted to, you know, today we've got a great show. We have Mark yeah. Davis from UC Santa Cruz. He's uh, uh, vice president for university relations there. Vice chancellor, I should say. I always mix that up sometimes, the vice president and the vice chancellor. Uh, but I wanted to ask you, did, did you ever think about entertaining the idea of being a vice president? Uh, why or why not? Uh, I did. Um, I, I, there were moments where I actually pursued a couple options. It just wasn't the right timing, wasn't the right, didn't work out sequencing wise where I was physically, time of life, kids in different locations and all that. So it just never really panned out. Um, and I watched several colleagues and friends do it. The one we're going to talk to, I've known for years, Mark. Um, who's uh, was at Rice as the alumni leader when I was at Lehigh. And I see on our call, Scott Morey has joined us. Uh, we'll talk about Scott in a little bit. I know he's on our list of questions today with for Mark. But um, Scott, you know, he started out at George Washington, went to USC, Southern Cal, and then he's in the role now. So I've seen my colleagues and friends do it. Um, but I never really had, it wasn't the, 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 the stars didn't align ever for it to be true. It's, I guess it's both something that you have to, both have the stars aligned for, for like time of life, where you're living, but also I think you, you probably have to seek it out, you know, and 
do some of the things in advance to make yourself a viable candidate for those types of roles yeah. when they open up. You know, I, I want I want Mark to tell this story, this part of it because he did some things that were I think were brilliant along the path, and that's and I didn't do those things. So that partly the stars not aligning where that I didn't things like having a portfolio, helping with a campaign, and th- things that I saw Scott and Mark doing uh, along the way that positioned them better for when the time came. They were they had the experience for it. So yeah, I think I think there are things, and I want Mark to give us that feedback. And when we get Scott on here in a few, I think Scott's joining us next year at some point. He's on our long-term list he'll tell us he'll give us some advice too but i definitely think there are specific things that should be done if you want to position yourself to be in that kind of role but let's ask the the expert on it well i mean yeah i mean to that end i guess why don't you think more individuals coming up through the ranks from the engagement side of the house get more opportunities for vp roles yeah i mean for a while it was early on it was unheard of and then people like folks we're talking to uh, when we're talking to sort of sort of break the ceiling there and, and and started to do it. So it's actually a little more common now, but I think it's because I think it's because of what I just said, we don't see people taking advantage of some other sets of opportunities they may have while they're in a role leading an alumni shop, they can do other things um, that uh, will position them better. So I, th- I think it's a matter of a, a, a conscious decision that you want to head that route. If you're a leader in alumni engagement, you make a conscious decision. I want to be a VP somewhere. What have I got to do to make that happen? Well, there's specific things along that path that we're going to talk about with Mark today um, that need need to be there. So, but it's not unheard of anymore. That's the good news. That is the good news. I think it's definitely things have changed a little bit in that regard. All right. Well, let's bring out Mark Davis to the show. Hey, Mark, it's good to see you. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Chris. Good to be here. Mark is the vice chancellor for university relations at UC Santa Cruz and president of its foundation. University relations consists of alumni engagement, development, innovation, and business engagement hub, communications and marketing, government and community relations. That's a pretty big portfolio there, Mark. (laughs) A lot going on. There's definitely a lot going on. We always need more people, but we're doing the best we can with our team. Uh, who are truly committed. It's a little intimidating to think that Scott's on on watching the the call. So, because um, I, I think he is obviously a great friend of mine and Chris's, and also a good mentor as well. And so, yeah. um, honored that he's actually been watching. We'll see if he sends in any any barbs or questions along the way. But you also wow. have Priya and other uh, Christy Tall uh, uh, Meredith. So, hi Meredith. A whole bunch of people from your team there watching you today too. So no pressure, Mark. Oh, they'll keep me, they'll keep me honest at least. They'll they'll put the, I guess comments to say that's not what Mark does. Yeah. And hey to Scott Mark, Francis, want- and Matt Winston and others. Go ahead, take it away, Ryan. Yeah, no, I, that's it's always good to uh, welcome our guests or listening live. It's fun to have a live viewing audience. Thanks for making this show part of your routine on on Fridays. Uh, we love it. But Mark, could you share a little bit about the university relations unit at UC Santa Cruz? It's it's not all about fundraising, right? It's a much more uh, expansive scope in terms of, I guess, external relations more broadly. Um, what are some of the non-fundraising goals and objectives you have there? Yeah, no, thanks for the question, Ryan. You know, it's interesting. I think the model here is one that may have existed in, in previous time for a lot of institutions. And as programs grow and get bigger, and uh, the priorities of the institution expand, obviously, as some of these units kind of splinter off and become other divisions of their own. So we, we've kind of chosen to keep them all together for us at, um, in the sense of our kind of maturity as an organization, 
um, our level of resources that we can leverage all of them together. Uh, but we, we we do three things. Uh, our goal is to um, promote the good work and increase the reputation of the institution by promoting the good work of our students, faculty, and staff. Um, engage our stakeholders, a broad group of stakeholders, uh, and then of course raise resources, both philanthropic and others. Um, since federal relations, state relations, and those areas are in this unit too, they certainly assist the, the chancellor and others to identify other resources for the university um, where philanthropy doesn't is not appropriate or is not as uh, a compelling opportunity. Let's take things back a little earlier in your career. You had alumni engagement roles both at Northern Arizona and then at Rice University. Did you imagine yourself uh, leading a team like the one at UC Santa Cruz? Or did you think that being the vice president, uh, leading a larger team like what you're doing now was was a career goal? I, I think um, uh, all of us, I think, go into these roles to have impact in some way. And so you always want the collection of experiences um, to lead you to something else where you can have even more impact. And, I, and so I'd say probably not early in my career, I probably didn't think that. Um, I think I wasn't seen beyond the position that I had. When I was in Northern Arizona, I was in my early 20s. And so the idea that I was going to be the head of alumni at another university was not on my mind whatsoever from the very beginning. Um, it was a pretty uh, new idea and, and also as a new for Rice. I was the first person at Rice who was not an alum uh, to run the alumni organization. So all those things were kind of new. Um, I think, but when I was at Rice at some point, um, I did have aspirations to want to run a much larger unit and have even greater impact. Um, and then some of the things that Chris said earlier, you know, some of the decisions I made in my career were, were both uh, serendipitous, but also somewhat intentional uh, so that I could have when opportunities like these arise, I would be considered a, a potential viable candidate for them. I, I know that you were in Hawaii right before you took the job at Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh, and I teased you about moving from Hawaii to Pittsburgh. Uh, <laughs> what was that role? Uh, remind uh, our audience. Uh, so you were at uh, Northern Arizona, Rice in the alumni roles, and then fill in the gap to Carnegie Mellon, if you don't mind. Yeah. So after Rice, um, so when I was at Rice, I was head of alumni, and then I transitioned to the president's office. That's right. I and that. so I was... Uh, uh, we didn't call it that, but kind of essentially a chief of staff uh, yeah. to the president and uh, working on his international initi initiatives. And so uh, did that for about four years after my alumni role. And then um, part of that, because of my international uh, part of my responsibilities, I actually end up just becoming so curious about what was going on in China because I was traveling there so much that I actually decided to move there. And so um, I left Rice, did a little bit of consulting work for them while I was there but was primarily doing a graduate degree at Tsinghua. And um, when I was coming back to the U.S. after that was completed, I was looking at opportunities, and I always thought, uh, my family and I thought we would be in New York, uh, but we had this call from Hawaii, um, and it answered a lot of questions for us. One is, uh, one, we want to be closer to the, uh, to the East uh, because we wanted to kind of take advantage of the experiences that we had in China and ensure there was an international component of that job too. So that was uh, also um, front of mind. And then two is, it was an interesting opportunity. I think all, all, I think all the positions that we try to pursue, we, yeah. we have to be aligned with the head of the organization of the person we're working for. And so 
he was pretty an inspirational, aspirational president at the time who was trying to do big things, a very different institution than I had been at before. Um, and I thought I could make impact. And so, and of course, Hawaii's beautiful, wonderful people, um, and an experience that certainly was life-changing for us. In that, when did it first occur to you that there's a potential for you to be a vice president in that journey? Was it when you were in the the rice chief of staff like role? Yes. Or was it, yeah, yeah, okay. I actually left rice because I needed my colleagues to see me as a vice presidential candidate. Um, yeah. and, and I think there's, you know, you know, you have the experience, you know, you have, uh, probably the, con the, the ability to contribute in certain ways. Right. But sometimes you have to leave and come back for folks to actually view you as an equal or a peer in the way that you want them to. And yeah. I think that that very much was a decision. One of the driving decisions of me leaving Rice was yeah. I needed that extra experience. Yeah. Could you share just a little bit about what your experience going to graduate school in China was like? I mean, I feel like I went to graduate school in Australia and, and I think about it as one of the best decisions I ever made. What was that like for you? Oh, I loved it. I, I think, you know, that the answer of you don't know your own country until you leave it is, is very true. Mm. Um, viewing the place that you have generally spent most of your life at from afar and from the perspectives of others is always, is, is certainly life-changing. Um, uh, I loved it. I, I, I had been there so many different times for work, uh, living there, uh, just added that much more kind of affection for the people, for the culture, and uh, and, and exposed me to, you know, people from all over the world. And I think that all that stuff from my education there and international relations to the people I met, and I met my husband there too. So uh, that, of course, was life-changing. Um, mm -hmm. All those things contributed to such an, an incredible experience. I was also there during, right after the Olympics. So it was during a time of significant growth, uh, significant openness, I think, to the world. And, and it's a very, you know, obviously it has evolved since then, um, but it was an extraordinary experience. Yeah. The, um, we were teasing about Scott a little bit. Scott Morey is the person um, who you worked for at Carnegie Mellon for a while. And we've known Scott back, you know, when you were at Rice, he was at George Washington, I was at Lehigh. And um, we, we, Scott's a, a wonderful guy, great leader, He's also really good at teasing and giving you grief about stuff. But so he's on the chat saying, leave me alone. But he said, thrilled to be here. But I want to ask you a sincere question about that. Four years with him, your role at Carnegie Mellon, my version of it in my mind is like you were campaign director, but maybe I'm sure other things in your portfolio. Talk about what that experience was like in preparing you for a vice presidency, working with Scott. Yeah, you know, it, it's in, in life, you know, you always think that you earned all these roles that you get. Right, right. Um, and, and it's actually never true. Um, these are all people taking a risk or, you know, sponsoring you in a unique way. And I think every role I've had since I graduated undergraduate was because of certainly, I, I, I like to think that I contributed <laughs> and worked hard to, to be on someone's radar. Um, but I also think it's people who, who, who see you from afar and the potential that you have and the contributions you can make. And I can say that about every position I had. Even my position at in the president's office at Rice was because of colleagues who said, you know, Mark has kind of yeah. hopefully not peaked in his alumni position. <laughs> but had, <laughs> right. had, uh, I guess, you know, um, 
I guess, completed what he set out to do in building that program. And so he would, that I would be at a point where I needed to look for different challenges. And I think that was one of the things that even Scott saw. Um, the president of the university in Hawaii was retiring. Uh, my position as chief of staff and head of international is certainly always kind of uh, vulnerable during those moments. Sure. Yeah. And, and as you said, I, I had interest in being a, a vice president for, for development and fundraising, and I was doing some of that work in Hawaii. That was one of the amazing things in Hawaii is both by happenstance and by necessity, I had various roles while I was there. I oversaw executive communications. I was advising on, on development and alumni relations. I was the acting vice president of enrollment management. I was doing the campus master plan. Um, <laughs> so all those things uh, kind of add to your um, yeah. portfolio of experiences. And um, and then, um, but the one thing that I didn't have as much of was frontline fundraising. And when Scott uh, moved to Carnegie Mellon from USC, uh, he you know invited me to have a number of conversations and the role that, you know, I would like to pursue at that point and the role that he was looking to fill kind of matched in a, in a unique way. And um, he invited me to be part of his team. And so it was great. And I remember one of the first things we said is like, you know, we're friends too. Uh, we were friends before we were colleagues, you know, in the sense yeah, of work. Right. And so how does this work? And, and in many ways for us, it actually worked quite well because we had the, the confidence and the trust to kind of provide feedback for each other. And at the same time, open enough, I think both of us, but primarily me, certainly, to be open to his mentorship. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that that went a long way to helping me prepare for this role. The title was officially at Carnegie Mellon? It's Associate Vice President and Campaign Director. Okay, right. Yep. Mark, let's talk just a little bit about your current role uh, leading the team at UC Santa Cruz. What surprised you the most about that role as you've taken on the reins in a couple of years now? Two years, Scott, or Mark, on, in the role? No, this is my fourth year. Can you believe that, Chris? I'm oh, actually, it's three years. Three <laughs> years and going on my fourth. Holy yeah, it's kind of Yeah, time goes by. Of course, two of those years were COVID years. So yeah, right. I, you know, all all blurred together into two for me, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll, you know, just to, uh, you know, carry the theme out of Scott, you know, one of the things that um, I said to Scott after my first year or so here, I, I saw him at Case, and I go, well, I won't tell too many people, but I think you were right about a lot of things. Uh, <laughs> oh, you just went public with it. <laughs> I, I know, I know, right? I did, I did go public. I, I think, you know, what's interesting is in these roles, um, a lot of the roles I had, except for the alumni position, certainly, um, it was not necessarily behind the scenes, but you were not, your physical, the way you showed up in a room was less important. Um, because the other person that you were supporting or next uh, or uh, supporting or uh, I'm sorry, working for or was the one that had that burden and responsibility. And so when you come into these roles, you realize that when you show up, um, people, it matters. It matters what you say. It matters how the enthusiasm that you carry into a room. And it matters um, when when you're trying to provide direction or inspiration for the, the organization. I think that was one of the biggest not aha moments, but moments of responsibility that um, that I carry every day, uh, and, and I think that's that's one of the hardest things, especially for an introvert, is to to show up in a space like that with that responsibility yeah. um, and do it authentically. 
tires you out. End of a day like that, you're done, right? You don't want to spend time with anybody. <laughs> yep. And I have two kids that I have come home to that yeah. have to keep that energy up. Yeah. Absolutely. My wife's an extreme uh, extrovert. I'm an introvert like you. People are surprised when I say that sometimes, but uh, I need my cave time. I call, leave me alone. <laughs> There's a number of people in this work that are situational extroverts is what I like to say. Yeah. You can um, deliver when you have to, right? Yep. Yeah. And I think that's, that's, it's, it's, it's actually good in, in many ways. One is that you, you, um, I think you just approach conversations with donors and others in a, in a kind of a different way. Um, and two, I think you, um, I don't know. I, I think there's pluses to both. I mean, I, I would love to be an extrovert because I think that, that would take a lot less energy off me at the end of the day. <laughs> But I also think there's some value in, in in the mixture of personalities, certainly. Yeah, 100%. How do you prioritize your, your time, Mark? You know, what what are some of the personal professional goals that you have for, I guess, this this fiscal year, we'll say? I'm sure there's lots of lots of goals, but what are you working on? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. And, and part of what I learned from, you know, my experiences with all these folks is, you know, trying to keep it simple. And so here at the university, we have, you know, five primary goals. One is, of course, a fundraising goal. Um, the others are kind of engagement goals and reputation building goals. Um, and then, and I think on, on top of that, it's kind of uh, this, it's a conversation about as we pursue those goals, how do we, what is our approach? So we want to build an inclusive and diverse environment so that we do our best work. We want to, um, Kind of maintain and excel kind of our pursuit of excellence not just do our work but do it really well and be proud of that work um and we also want to deliver on the goals right these are goals that are important to the institution we we're here and we choose to be part of universities because we want to make an impact and that impact is oftentimes raising the resources that are desperately needed for those institutions to succeed um, and that kind of steadfast discipline effort um, is important and of course, there's personal goals. And, you know, I have an 18-month-old and a five-year-old and trying to be a good father and good husband and a good, I don't know, family member to all those people and a good friend to people. I think all those things are important and obviously uh, take a hit when you have like these kind of 24-7 jobs. And so just kind of doing your best to control your schedule as best you can so that you have some kind of balance, however you define balance. I think that's important too. I want to... I want my kids to know that I was there. I don't want them to remember me by the, the the flight that I took the day before, but that I'm actually there at the the important things. One of the things I've observed um, as I've gotten through my career, I've never been in your role or where others like you are, but what I've observed is that your responsibility to be not just the leader of this diverse group of, <laughs> you have a big portfolio, as, as Ryan said, um, not just that, you're a university leader, you're a university citizen, and your your job sometimes you get pulled into, like you did when you were in Hawaii, campus planning discussions or diversity discussion, whatever. You find that challenge there as well. You get you find your, your chancellors pulling you into things that are outside your scope of your work, but part of your university leadership role you're getting pulled into as well. Well, you hope you hope they are, right? I sure. think when when you have you know it. I've had the luxury of of really working with a number of senior or in the, I guess the inner inner group of university leaders for several different universities, and and you're not supposed to be there to just represent your unit. You're supposed to be there to be a thought partner on broad based right. issues that are affecting the institution. 
And, and in order to be effective in that space, you have to to be there in that space with that that mindset. I, I think um, I just circulated um, a YouTube video on first team, uh, the idea of first team, uh, the idea that the team that you are with on, on at the leadership team, the team that you're with every single yep. day, that's the group that you're rooting for. That's the group that you're trying to support. And I think that's important at the leadership team for the university is because people view it's not just the chancellor, it's not the, the campus provost, it's the entire leadership team that are aligned, trying to make, make progress on, on key initiatives of the institution. Um, so I both welcome that that additional kind of responsibility, but I also, in the end of the day, we have to raise money. Yeah. And so we have to be disciplined in carving out time that's necessary to make those visits. Do you enjoy that work, Mark? The the raising of the money, interacting with major donors, having those conversations. You mentioned you're you're an introverted guy. You have to sort of really get some momentum and energy going to have these conversations. And you've come from the alumni side of the house, which is kind of a different role, right? Um, but I, I know you've got lots of experience now. But how is how is your how do you feel about that work of interacting with major donors and the pressure of securing large gifts. You know, it's interesting as 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 a situational extrovert. I, I actually think the alumni job's harder because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> when I was when I was at Rice, it was like in two thousand three, I think, and then the university won the College World Series against Stanford, and I had to introduce the athletic director, I had to introduce the coach, and I had to be this kind of raw, raw, energetic person, which is not my nature. And so I had to go in the corner and kind of get myself psyched up to do that. Like that, this role is actually a lot easier because I feel like I'm more authentically myself that I can right, right. go up in the room and and be supportive and and be authentic. I I love fundraising. It's one of the things that I didn't think I'd ever say when I was you know starting out in the business or an alumni. But it, you know you're just you know we're all adults. We're all talking about wanting to make an impact, and the and the the conversations you have with donors are all about matching their their goals of making an impact with the institutions. And that's just a that's just a, a very, quite honestly, an easy conversation to have. Um, everybody's kind of afraid of the no or afraid of the ask, but quite usually it's pretty natural in those conversations that it comes up. And, and people, especially those who give at the highest levels, are used to those conversations. And so they 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 appreciate frankness mm. um, and genuine and authentic conversations. And I like it because I think, you know, all the different roles I've had have really forced me to really think critically about just the operations of the institution, how we compare to other universities, how we're trying to make a difference. And I feel like I bring that to those conversations differently than I've if I've just been in fundraising the entire time. I think there's different pathways, certainly, and each pathway makes you stronger in different areas. I think the pathway that, say, you know, Scott went through or Donna Arbide, um, others um, who started out in alumni engagement in some ways um, all contribute to our, you know, our effectiveness. And so we bring those with us to every space. And I, I tell I tell my friends and, and, and my folks on my team, when I have a good donor conversation or I feel like I've changed, changed their minds, not changed their minds, but kind of led them to a place that they feel like they right. could be successful and have impact, there's nothing better than that. It, yeah. it feels like you've, you know, won the lottery for the institution and for that person. Yeah, and you walk away very happy with the experience. Have you had a favorite moment uh, since the, over the four years? I'm sure you've had many 
exciting moments, but what stands out? Like, gosh, that really was a, a joyful moment for you. That's an interesting question. Um, off script too. So I know it's get... really off script. So I know, I know. <laughs> we threw two curveballs at you so far, Mark. You're yeah. handling well so far. <laughs> you know, I, 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 this probably sounds cliche, but I, I actually was excited when I rounded out my leadership team. Yeah, I could see that. I, I find great pride in the people that have agreed to be, you know, associated with us, the university and the team that I, I'm trying to help lead. And I think every time you secure the person that you want to be in that role, um, you know, those are victories to me. Like when, say, John Pine. Yeah. Who might be watching Priya, Priya is on the call. And Priya, the- exactly. I, there's a number of people I could just kind of say that when they said yes to me when we were trying to recruit them to the institution, there's nothing better than that. Because, yeah. and, I, and the hardest part is trying to, you know, certainly making sure that I stay out of their way so they can be happy. Get out of their way, right? <laughs> yeah. I remember that same feeling when I was at Cornell in the AVP role. We filled out the leadership team underneath with a group of, it was like, it reminded me when I was a, um, coach we spent the whole year recruiting kids and then you get those phone calls in the in the spring and you get the occasional no but then the yes from the kid that's going to make the difference that's that same exact feeling i had when i got a yes from a recruit i got a yes from a candidate yeah it feels so good (laughs) well that brings us to the top of the hour and the end of our live show for this week it's been a great one thank you so much for everyone for tuning in we are gonna hop over to another quiet internet room and record our bonus segment with Mark that you can listen to on the podcast version. Thanks everyone who's been listening and be sure to visit uh, protopia.co forward slash alumnus. Chris Marshall, who do we feature in yeah. two weeks? I want to make sure we we plug the new, the next guest Mark two weeks ago when we had this moment, I plugged you as a, uh, one of the most thoughtful people I've ever met in my life. And you felt you lived up to the billing it was such a great conversation with you. Thank you. I know we're looking forward to another half hour here, but thanks in advance. And another great person coming up is Chris Davitt, University of Pittsburgh. She's the vice president for advancement there. Very smart, thoughtful, uh, great leader, uh, but also one of the funniest people I've ever met. I keep a log when I'm in meetings with her of what I call Davitisms because she says these things. <laughs> <laughs> They're just so funny. They keep a line. I have a book full of like a page of davitisms that we'll 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 tease her about next or two weeks from now. So look forward to that. Davitisms. I also look forward to that. All right. Well, thanks everyone for joining us. Be well. We'll see you in two weeks with Chris, and uh, we'll head to the podcast version with Mark. So thanks for listening, everybody. Bye now. Take care. Thanks again, Mark. Hey, listeners. Chris and I were going to record an ad discussing all the great aspects of Protopia, of which there are many, but instead we thought it would be even better to hear from one of Protopia's current partners. Here's Sally Sistar, Executive Director of Alumni Engagement at Denison University, talking about her experience with the technology. If you like what you hear, be sure to go to protopia.co forward slash alumnus and check it out. How do you see Protopia fitting into your plans? You mentioned a few ways that I might imagine it fitting in, but what do you think? It's a tremendous fit. Listen, I cannot tell you how excited I was when I took this job to know that they already had Protopia, right? It's a very, very smart decision. Um, because one, it just, you know, it with the AI technology enabled, like it takes us out of the equation, right? It is really, 
a great tool for alumni and students to ask those questions and be connected to, you know, the the top experts, right, or the top individuals to answer those questions for them. Um, what I've been really excited to hear about here at Denison is, you know, if that question goes to five alumni, well, all five of our graduates are answering. And then it gets into, you know, like um, a train of communications between them and the individual asking the question. So it's really facilitating community for us in a way that we couldn't do that ourselves if we were at the helm of trying to, you know, facilitate someone's question going to those individuals, right? It's just, it's automatic and that's the beauty of it. Um, the other thing I would say to you is that it is also, it's bringing people into, um, it's engaging alumni that may not have engaged with us in any other way, right? But they really are appreciative that, you know, they get an opportunity to, to help another alumni um, member or help a student. Um, so I just, I mean, I can't say enough great things about what a difference maker that has been for us on the engagement level. All right, we are back with Mark Davis. He is the Vice Chancellor for University Relations at UC Santa Cruz. Just had a great conversation in our live show, and we're back. And I thought it would be a good place to start, Mark, to talk a little bit about UC Santa Cruz because it's a really unique school. And I think folks out there may not be aware of exactly how unique it is. So I was thinking it would be kind of fun to talk a little bit about you know, UC, Santa Cruz, um, what makes it such a unique institution? And can you talk a little bit about how those qualities have impacted your work in university relations? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question, Ryan. Um, so, and, and I imagine I didn't appreciate this as much, um, even going into the role as I do now. I think that's like every university, you learn more and more about it that inspires you. And I, this is an extraordinary institution that's part of an extraordinary system and uh, the University of California system and, and Santa Cruz is only about 60 years old but it was it was um, born out of um, uh, a deep commitment to environmental and social justice and you you see that in really the ethos of the campus and the programs it chooses to pursue and um, the conversations that you have both about philanthropy as well as you know all aspects of the institution and so to have a university that is a an aau research intensive institution that is committed to cutting edge research and equally committed to access where 40 percent of the entering class are pell grant eligible and that means their families make $50,000 or less on an annual basis and over 30% that are um, from traditionally underrepresented backgrounds is an extraordinary kind of opportunity um, and aspiration for a university to not only drive research, but drive research in a way that brings everyone into that, that footprint and everyone has an opportunity to, to contribute and everyone has an opportunity to be at the highest levels of education and research. And so we're both an HSI and a, and a PZ school. And I think there's only a handful or two handful 
of institutions that can claim both being an AAU and uh, an MSI. So what I, I know um, a Hispanic serving institution, what is AAU? AAU is the Association of American Universities, and, and it's, uh, it's the 60 top research intensive universities okay. in the country, and you have to be invited to be a member, but it's considered the most, the, the top research universities in the United States. Got and then and Anna Pizzi is the um, Asian American, Native American, Pacific Islander serving institution too. And that's also a designation um, by the Department of Education. Got it. Thank you. Um, I, I had a chance to do a project with, with your team at um, UC Santa Cruz, working with Shana Kent uh, back before John Pine joined the team. And I thoroughly enjoyed uh, interviewing folks on campus and getting to know the institution. But Chris, you've actually been there. You've been working with Mark and the team quite a bit longer. Um, what were your impressions of the institution? For those listeners who have never been to, to the campus there, you know, how would you describe it? It is breathtakingly beautiful, expansive. It's not like any other college campus I've ever been on. And it's hard to describe, Mark. You might have some words for it better than I do. But it's if, you, if you're a visitor only a few times there, to go back and say, what was it like? It's not like a college campus. It's a very different feel to the place. It's... First of all, you can see the Pacific Ocean from it. It's expansive and it's there's woods and all that. But my main three takeaways were this. There's three words I'll tell you. The, the college system there struck me differently than I have any other place. When we talk about colleges and most universities, like you think about all the other UC schools, when they say about colleges, they're talking about their college of business, their college of law or school of law. Um, and that when you say colleges at UC Santa Cruz, it's those residential colleges where you live for your first and second year, Mark. Is it two years there? Yeah, and and, they, and there's ten of them. Nine of them, uh, eight of them had names when I was there. They named the ninth one. Is the tenth one named yet, Scott or, or Mark? Not, not yet. yet, not yet. But the the ninth one was named after John R. Lewis. So we're well, we're pretty honored I was there to have that. Was dedicated. Yeah. It was amazing. And they they spend and they have a theme in that in those colleges where you spend that first two years there, embedded in that particular learning environment and, and, and living with people who all feel so. The, so so from an alumni engagement standpoint, what we started to figure out was that there's a strong connection to that first two years and your affiliation to that college is a big piece of your, your affinity, if you will. The other reality about um, UC Santa Cruz is that there's a lot of transfers. So some transfers don't experience that. And you have a large population of alumni who came there, went, came there for the last two years, didn't have that first two years. So my first word was colleges and the last two are sort of fun ones, but they have a, a spot on campus, Ryan, where there are trailers parked in a big circle around and they serve as a dormant residential hall space. And, and, and I think it's junior year housing. You can get a trailer on campus <laughs> to, to live in literally like a camp camping trailer. And and they're hot. People want them. It's like a big deal to get, get in them. So that was another takeaway. And then the third one was happened that when I was there, I was getting a driving tour of campus from John and um, they, their, their uh, grass control method is they, they bring in goats and the goats roam campus and chew up, eat up the grass to maintain the you know the look and feel of the place. So, just wow. a, it, it, you know, college trailer and goats all in those the are same. the three words, right? Yeah, it's a very interesting um, kind of reflection of the campus. <laughs> I, I, I would say, uh, it, well, some people would say that we have to remind them it's not a national park because it right, feels right. like yeah. one. It's a good way to put it. Yep. The bridges that go over the ravines, the the spaces, uh, the buildings are all intentionally hidden in the trees. Yep. And as as Chris was saying, the breathtaking view of Monterey Bay while you're in the redwoods, 
is a pretty extraordinary experience and there's sweeping hills and fields and things like that that are that are you pretty... said it so much better than i did but <laughs> no 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 it, it's amazing i mean the trailers were you know it's interesting it's folklore a little bit because they were they were placed there decades ago as a um to support the housing needs of the institution and they become now these kind of cute quaint yeah yeah um i'm sure you know we're nervous about them because that's not the best way to to house students um in this day and age but it's certainly a a, a coveted um space on campus that people enjoy because of the community in which it, it creates in the woods and then the goats generally is the because we're in the we're in the trees where there, there's issues of fire danger and other things um and so the goats are actually one of the most um environmentally sensitive ways to to keep um the weeds and and, and invasive species in check uh, so that we don't have um, as m much of a risk during fire. Yeah. But while my last two pieces are, are a little bit in jest, they all fit into the sort of the ethos of the place, like like having a trailer, having a place to live, having goats on campus, the environmental sort of background of the institution. It's sort of all on on theme is what I would say for UC Santa Cruz. Well, the college aspect sounds a little bit like, you know, we talked to um, – uh, our colleagues, when we talk to our colleagues in the UK at um, Oxford or, or Cambridge that have a similar type of residential experience in their college where they where they live and study, right? It's um, schools in Australia, University of Melbourne has a little of that. Um, but I guess sort of switching gears, Mark, to ask you a little bit about working within the UC system. We, we talked to just, we briefly touched on it, but um, what's been your experience like working within the UC system and, and then with the UC Office of the President? Um, well, if I could just uh, to say, too, on um, the residential college program, too, I think what's unique about it is that um, in the United States, you see it in the private sector. Yeah. Um, so the private university, you see it at Rice, you see it at, I think, even at is it Harvard, uh, other places that have, and I think Vanderbilt. Um, started building kind of that system too, because it's a unique way to obviously uh, really support student success at institutions. What you don't see it as big publics, um, and we're one of the few that do. And, and that's one of the unique characteristics is trying to that they're all th thematic in some ways. They all have core courses, and then they have the housing and, and residential and the you know certainly the food element too. And so I think those things are what's unique. It's also very hard to maintain in a big public too. Um, to create community in big spaces. I think for the system, um, it's interesting. You know, I, I, I started my career in Arizona, and so I was quite familiar with Arizona University system, um, but it was obviously designed and organized differently. I was even a student regent when I was an undergrad there, and so I was quite familiar with how um, regents and government entities work. But I think California is so unique because you have 10 universities that are extraordinary, um, governed by uh, a system in the regions. And um, you you see it both as, um, there are two things that I see about. One is you have great colleagues who you can always refer to when you have questions or concerns or need advice on how to pursue something, both whether it's in the system or outside the system. I think those things, you always have a, a natural group of people that you can call to. Um, you also have a system office like you can call to when you have questions about certain things. So there's a, there's a lot of policies and procedures that we have to follow in and having all those folks around is helpful. I think the other thing that um, we always have to kind of think about 
in the spaces to not only think about the UCs. And I think that's that's some of the, the challenges of being in such a system because you always often compare yourself to how UCX is doing compared to you in certain spaces. And um, you can learn a lot from your fellow UCs, certainly they're among the top in the country. But you can also learn from all these universities throughout the country and internationally on how to do things. And so I think that's a constant constant thing for me as someone who hasn't been part of, have been in a private university for so long and joining a system is to make sure that we're not so insular, not only thinking about the system, but thinking broadly about what these issues are, are happening across the country in all these different spaces. You know, when I think about UC Santa Cruz and, and some of the, um, the, the sort of core aspects, the personality of the university, one thing that comes to mind is sort of the, the counterculture uh, sort of the push against, let's say, authority, push against, back against the administration, sort of it's in the, the DNA of the of the system, but perhaps more so uh, for a long time, right? Back to the 60s, we think about uh, some of the counterculture pushes. And I think it's, it's maybe still present at UC Santa Cruz. Um, the school has had its fair share of protests or activism around various issues, um, how do you navigate the balance between supporting free expression and maintaining campus safety and order and that sort of thing? It's a good question. And I think it's something um, like there's no right answer to it. I think it's it's just being present, being engaged and and trying to be as transparent as possible. And and such a system is, is at least how you you start that approach. I, I think you know what's interesting for me is when I talk to folks, um, we we certainly support freedom of expression and, and freedom of speech and the right to to articulate concerns about anything that the institution is doing. I think the part that we're constantly trying to ensure folks know is that we're allies. Um, we are the people. We are first gen uh, gen students ourselves. We're the ones that. We've arrived at these roles because we've worked very hard and for decades, but we're in many ways, I'd like to think what some of these folks aspire to be over time, maybe in a different industry or anything like that, but in the sense of being able to, I guess, be the outcome of that effort to increase social mobility access and allow people in leadership to be in positions that are are from BIPOC backgrounds or from first-gen backgrounds, all those things, like that's what you see in the leadership of UC Santa Cruz. And so we're we're all there. <laughs> we used to be the protesters. We used to be these, yeah. <laughs> these advocates. And so to be on the other side of that and people view us differently than that is always interesting to us because like we were there. And um, I just hope more people see, view us instead of just always counterculture or just so, and, you know, questioning authority. I, you know, I welcome that because I think that's how we create a vibrant, rich discourse about topics. Um, we don't just assume things are right just because we've done them for years. It's we have to really think about what is right, um, what is just, because the systems that are in place are, are were built by people unlike us in some ways. But I also hope people see us as allies. And I think that's the part that um, we work to try to achieve is we want to celebrate their successes. We're trying to raise money for them to be successful. And if they see us as allies, I think we'll be much more productive, both as an institution and as as a campus. And so I think that's part of it. 
it comes with the territory um, when you're part of a system and part of a population and part of California that, you know, is so kind of on the cutting edge of progressive movements. It comes with the territory. And so it it's you you view it as the positive that it is. And then you try your best to um, keep everything, you know, certainly peaceful and productive and that we're actually achieving the things that we want to achieve collectively. What's the, when I was doing the discovery work early on to try to get myself up to speed on the culture of the place and the line that I heard from several alums was it were the authority on being anti-authority or something like that? What, what was the line? Mark? Yeah, it was an old slogan of the university. We're yeah. the authority on questioning authority. Yeah, that, right. it was something the university actually promoted for a number of years. And <laughs> I um and I you know it's funny I I don't um. The ethos I understand and I appreciate, um, but I, to me, it's I, it's not questioning authority for questioning authority's sake. It's questioning right. authority because yeah. you want to make a change, yep. or you have concerns about the movement or the direction of things that are going. Um, and so I think that's just the difference. I think we we interpret that that line slightly different than I think um, it was interpreted, you know, some decades ago. The other thing that's interesting is that you know you know when some of these things were created, this is this was a non diverse campus. And so the last 20 years of this universe, last 30 years of the university has transformed the makeup of the institution. And so there's much more diversity in the sense of what that culture means and what that statement means. Um, and, and we have to appreciate that, that full range of perspective. You know, having that right there, that conversation as an institution or having part of that as sort of your brand and if you will, your ethos as you share I was just down in Florida at a private college and um, the question was posed to the president in a small session with the alumni board. Are you feeling pressure from the governor of Florida on the topics of DEI as a private institution that we're seeing play out at some of the public institutions flip over the country over to California? You don't have that problem there. It would be, it's, it's just a different mindset because of the place you're in and, institution you're at and all that and the and the leadership and the political base there frankly it's it's a different feel like take, take, if you see santa cruz was in florida we'd have a much different kind of a place absolutely and you know it's interesting we were at i i know chris was at case i don't know if you were ryan but ryan you know we there. we had a session on hsi institutions or hsru's you know hispanic serving research intensive universities we had a right. small group and you know there are colleagues in different states that can't have these conversations without some fear of yeah. what they can say publicly I think um, what I say in California right now is first, it is both um, a luxury that we can do that, but also um, a necessity that we do that. And it's a responsibility because uh, if our, if our colleagues can't do this anymore, um, then we have the burden and the responsibility to make sure that we're making progress in this space and pushing back on, on issues that we think are on the wrong side of history. I, I think, we know that there are systemic barriers that still are in place that prevent people from having a voice, from having um, access and from having opportunity. Yep. And the idea that that is in the past is, is ludicrous. And so yep. we as a institution and as a state have to say, certainly have to change some narratives because the narratives are not uh, conducive in some states anymore, but I'm not gonna concede the point. The point is not that we have achieved all these things. We have made some progress, but the problems that still exist are, are legacy 
from these systemic barriers that still exist. And and the, the you know a great punctuation on that is the naming of your ninth college as the John R. Lewis College. You promoted getting into good trouble, as we all know, right? That's what some ways it stands for it is off script. And and if we have to delete this, we will <laughs> Mark, but um, is the 10th college, is there something that is in the works that could be another name for it? We, we it? hope so. What's interesting is we named college 10 before we named college nine. So it is the ninth college, but it's technically college 10. Right. Uh, yeah. So we, you know, it's interesting. I think in philanthropy at, at UC Santa Cruz, I think this is what's interesting is that most of the, the buildings that are named or the colleges that are named, um, are named by donors who wanted to not be named for themselves, but for mm. others, which is, as you know, highly unusual, Absolutely. but very, but very much more, at least recent history common at UC Santa Cruz, that people want important leaders who are making a difference at the, at, around the world and locally they want those people to be named after things and they're giving the resources and the endowments to do that. And so the other one that we just um, announced was it last year is the, we have the uh, research for the Americas, the center for research in Americas. And, and we named that after Dolores Huerta um, this past year. Mm-hmm. And she came to the opening and, and the work that we're doing aligns with the work that she has done historically and what right. she's doing now. But that that's part of the ethos is that, What's interesting too, though, is that now a lot of folks think that's how all gifts come in, <laughs> and that's not how all gifts come in. Certainly, <laughs> right. um, so we have to be comfortable that things are named after you know individuals who support the institution yeah. in different ways too. And and but it, it is a, a unique and really kind of a, a special aspect of the institution. I'll I'll take it on that sort of the direction and go outside of this level of conversation to the fact that you are right in the backyard of Silicon Valley as an institution, you fly in the SFO. It's an hour or so drive South down, down to the coast on a really windy, crazy road. But um, the, you go right through Silicon Valley and your, 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 your campuses, you have part of your campuses there. Actually, you have a literally have a physical building and location there. So it gets to the um, innovation and business engagement hub. I'm assuming that's the direct connection to that part of the world. And the fact that you're in the hotbed of, technological and startup and entrepreneurship and things that, um, you know, where, where, where there's money being made in different ways, <laughs> put it that way, that Santa Cruz is connected to. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. So it's either flying to SFO or San Jose, right? San Jose is even quicker right. um, and in the heart of Silicon Valley. I, I think, you know, uh, the engine of, um, of a lot of the growth that we have found in tech is, is in that space, right? Um, there's more millionaires and billionaires in that space in that small area of California than there are in most of the world. Um, for us, you know, certainly we have a, a campus in Santa Clara. We have the main campus in Santa Cruz. We have a campus in Monterey Bay, um, and a coastal campus also in Santa, the Santa Cruz area. Um, for us thinking about, you know, what is our Silicon Valley strategy is kind of, you know, often a, a conversation that people have. And I, you, you can have one, but it all is based upon the, the, the strengths of the institution, the degrees we offer, the programs we offer, the research we're doing, and the individuals that are connected to the institution or that network. And so it's not, you know, in some ways it's, it, it should be very specific. And in other ways, it, it, it kind of flows in line with how all development operations go. You go where 
the resources are. You go where the connections of the possible collaborations exist. We just are lucky enough to be, you know, right next door or part of uh, that corridor. And and but we also have you know big, much bigger peers um, that are in that space too. Right. Sure. And so the part for us that I think I think is a, a, important for folks in Silicon Valley to know. The different of uh, about investing in a place like Santa Cruz and other places, it's it's because of the obviously the extraordinary research we're doing, for sure, in unique spaces that they care about. Um, it's also the lens, the social justice lens, to make sure that you know we're not only just creating technology, but we're creating technology for good, or we're creating technology with a lens to understand the impact down the road, so we're not just creating it and causing more harm. But the third is also the diversity of our graduate students, um, both at the undergrad level and the graduate students level. If we have a significant portion of uh, our, our student population that are BIPOC, Latinx, um, of diverse backgrounds, and we know Silicon Valley is not known for being diverse, um, if you were able to take a whole like engineering class from UC Santa Cruz and place them inside key businesses in, in Silicon Valley, you will drastically change yeah. the yeah. makeup and demographic of the populations of Silicon Valley. And so investing in institutions like ours, both because of the quality of the education and the research that's going on, but two also, you know, the three is the kind of extraordinary voices yep. that you're kind of placing into these industries. You do more overnight than you can if you invest in some of these other institutions. And so that, that's the argument that we make. Um, whether it's working or not, I'm not sure, but we certainly are, are exploring that. Yeah. Awesome. Wonderful. Lo love it. That's yeah. one of the things I love about Santa Cruz. Complicated, but really interesting, you know? Yeah. Like one of the, one of the um, engineering school or college, we call it school at Santa Cruz? We call it school, yeah. Engineering school. One of the largest of the majors. There. It, it's amazing what's accomplished in that world given that fact that it has a focus on the environment and social justice and everything else, there's this engineering school, this jewel sitting right in the middle of it all. So it's not dis disconnected from everything, detached from the rest of reality. It's very much in all the things that Mark was describing. I I, what's interesting about this place, you know, it, I think there's a storied history of it, you know, um, from its beginning. Uh, it was always, at the time, was a grand experiment in higher education in California and has become, you know, proven experiment that these things, these kind of features and values work. But this is where the you know the genomic institute is here, and this is where the first full sequencing of a human genome was done at, at UC Santa Cruz wow. in, in the wow. early two thousands. It's you know most of the people who have time on the James Webb Telescope at the moment are astronomers, world class astronomers that are associated with UC Santa Cruz and are leading that effort. And so there's all these things that people may or may not know about the university, but are hard at work behind the trees and in the skies, right? Yeah. Hard at work behind the trees in the forest. Yeah, that's right. Uh, well, we got a couple minutes left, Mark, for this episode. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Uh, to wrap things up, let's do our Friday cheers section. Why don't you lead us off? What What's something that's got you thinking this week? Um, I think it's it's some well. I know we talked about it just a little bit earlier. I, I think one is you know how you're showing up in the space and how you're caring about. Um, the people you work with. And um, because of my my role is we care about institutional messages and how we're communicating to the whole um, campus as well as external parties. And the um, caring about that and, and thinking about that is 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 
a significant part of what we do, but also caring about your own team and how you're showing up and respecting um, what they may be going through during challenging times, like the world events that we're experiencing now. And so for me, it's more of pausing, knowing your institutional responsibility, but understanding your human responsibility. And as a leader, um, making space for your team members so that those that are hurting, those that are impacted heavily have both support and um, kind of acknowledgement that these things are affecting all of us and are infecting some even more. And then it's infecting the way they present or show up in the workplace. And we need to be supportive in that. So I think, um, I think that's, that's on my mind as of this week. It's important, you know, those folks who list, might be listening to this months down the line, you know, we just, this week was the week where Hamas attacked, you know, Israel and um, it really caused a, a, just a tremendous, opened up a new war seemingly in the world that, um, affects so many people. And, um, I'm sure it's, it's affecting those on your team and, uh, it's, it makes a lot of sense that that would be top of mind. Chris, what's your Friday cheers build on that theme is, is similar with the events in Israel, um, or, um, the impact it has had on Israel. I, I worked for a company that's based in Tel Aviv, just outside of Tel Aviv in Ranana. Um, and I've been there, um, no people there still, and it's just heartbreaking to see what happened. So my, that's on my mind. Mark said it so well. Um, but I'll share this. Um, there are some institutions out there. If you're listening to this now and it's around this time, so we're October 2023, uh, October 13th. Um, if you're listening to the podcast and you're hearing this is later on, but if your institution has not made a statement on how this is impacting their community and et cetera, um, it probably is time to think about it if you haven't done it already. Um, I just saw several over the last couple of days from different colleges and a few of them were run by me that we're going to send this out to our alumni. What do you think kind of responses? And my answer is always, you know, I don't, I don't have much feedback on the thing. My answer is do it. Don't even hesitate. You got to put something out there uh, and take a stand. And and it's important. There's some institutions that hide behind because they're worried about the impact it's going to have. Someone's going to complain. Someone's going to be other side of the issue. It's going to affect our fundraising. <laughs> this, this transcends all that. In my opinion, we got to have a statement that's clear about, this from a human level, humanity level. Uh, that's where it should come from, in my opinion. <clears throat> yeah, and uh, I, I'm going to go a little bit different direction on on my Friday cheers. You, you guys said a lot out there and important considerations. Uh, first off, on a lighthearted note, the Philadelphia Phillies uh, advanced in the in the playoffs, and I don't really watch baseball till the end of the season because there's <laughs> 162 games, and I just can't pay attention. But uh, playoff baseball is really exciting, particularly when your team is doing well. Uh, Chris and I are both Philadelphia fans, so it's always fun to see the team do well. But uh, another thing I was going to mention this week is a great book I just finished. And I've been trying to read more of the Pulitzer Prize winning works of fiction over the last year. I've been trying to dig into some of those. And I've just wrapped up a book called The Orphan Master's Son by Adam Johnson. And it's a novel from 2012 that won the Pulitzer Prize. And it takes place in North Korea and follows a, a boy who was raised in an orphanage and his journey through life through these various um, uh, crazy happenings. But really, you get this amazing sense of what it's like living there, the poverty, the class system, the propaganda, the fealty to the supreme leader, and the way they create these different hero journeys that power the propaganda in North Korea so that people are believe one thing or another. And 
it's it's amazing just to because I never really have a great. I always found North Korea to be a very interesting country, and for lots of reasons. But to read a book that's really kind of provides that feeling of what it might be like to live there and to be sort of a normal person going through the different challenges of life, listening to propaganda when it's on the loudspeakers, when you wake up in the morning, blasting through these different uh, communities in different ways. It's just a a powerful read. And I understand why it won the Pulitzer. So uh, the orphan master's son, it's a little bit of an old books, 10 years old now by Adam Johnson was was a pretty good one. You make me feel bad about the book that I just read. <laughs> my my latest book was uh, Dragons Love Tacos. <laughs> Different genre. Is that a, that's a kids book? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we we have that and read it many times in our house, Mark. Yep. There's a couple of kids books. My yeah yeah. We could have a nice conversation about children's <laughs> books, but um, we'll save that for a different time. Uh, Mark Davis, thank you so much. It was great to have you. Nice to meet yeah. you. Look forward to an opportunity to shake hands in person, but grateful for your time to be on the Alumnus podcast. Chris, good to see you as always, sir. Yep. We'll yes, uh, sir. connect again. In, um, we're actually going to record early for our episode in two weeks because we are going to be in Denver, Colorado together at the University yep. of Denver in two weeks' time. Mark, thank uh, you Thanks for so listening, much. everybody. Well done. Appreciate it. We'll be back in your feed in two weeks. Uh, Have a great weekend. Bye now.